Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast of excellence. You can probably hear that my microphone sounds different again, which means I'm at my partner's house, which means my car's working again. Yay, I've been stuck in my house for a week now, and my car's working again, and it's miraculous. Um, it's Monday night at the moment for me, as I speak. And on Friday morning, we're moving house together. We're both moving from our houses into a new house. And it's super exciting. So um, I've got three schools to teach this week. I did one today. I've got one tomorrow and then another one next day. So that takes me through to Wednesday of pretty action-packed days. And then on the Friday, moving house commences. So, oh my God, I've just got... This is one of those weeks where it's like, I've got a billion things to do. That's fine. It's all good. Uh, Let's talk about Book 8, Chapter 2. How did you feel about this chapter? What are your thoughts on Prince Bolkonsky's advancing dementia and Maya's reaction to it? And what about Maya's other relationships with Julie, her nephew, Boreen, etc.? I found it interesting how her relationship with Julie was so strong via correspondence by mail but when they uh, find themselves in the same city together kind of not that fun to be around it's one of those relationships that works better remotely as a pen pal um i don't really feel like that specific thing has happened to me before but i can definitely see how that would happen like it's it seems like a very real thing so i found that interesting karaka kickass says what is the deal with boreen this household seems horribly unpleasant. <clears throat> Excuse me, unpleasant. I can only imagine she's angling for a place in the will, but she's not even related to them. Was that common for someone without money to just attach themselves to a rich family? Yeah, had I think at some point in the novel, and maybe already, it is kind of mentioned what she is to them. And I don't know, to be honest, I can't remember, but I think she had sort of a token role there like she was the nurse of them or something like that i don't know and then just you know stuck around ever since with the proviso that now she's kind of like something like a companion to old bolkonski warren kopofi said i defended old bolkonski in previous chapters thinking that while he was strict and outright mean he still cared for maya and andre and wished the best that might have been the case but now i've got to admit that he's just outright vindictive and cruel particularly to Maya. I'm sure that a lot of this has to do with the bitterness he feels regarding his declining health, but still poor Maya doesn't deserve the hand she is dealt. For sure. Maya is... I mean, at this point in the book, you really feel bad for her, don't you? She really doesn't deserve this hand that she's been dealt. McCuddleson says, This part of the book seems to pretty much parallel the plot of the musical Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. I'd love to watch that musical. I haven't. Um, But yeah, I think we're entering into the stage of the book that that play, musical I should say, is uh, based on. I'm going to put it on my list of things to do. I'm going to go and see that at some point. But for now. But for now. Let us us read what are we up to here chapter three three chapter three goes like this 
in 1811, there was living in Moscow a French doctor called Metivier, who had rapidly become the fashion. He was enormously tall, handsome, amiable as Frenchmen are, and was, as all Moscow said, an extraordinarily clever doctor. He was received in the best houses not merely as a doctor, but as an equal. Prince Nicholas had always ridiculed medicine, but latterly, on Mademoiselle Borine's advice, had allowed the doctor to visit him and had grown accustomed to him. Metivier came to see the prince about twice a week. On December 6th, St. Nicholas's Day, and the prince's name day, all Moscow came to the prince's front door, but he gave orders to admit no one and to invite to dinner only a small number, a list of whom he gave to Princess Mary. We're talking about Prince Nicholas being old man Volkonsky, by the way. Mativia, who came in the morning with the felicitations, considered it proper in his quality of Doctor de Force Le Consigne to force the guard, as he told Princess Mary, and went in to see the prince. It happened that on that morning of his name day, the prince was in one of his worst moods. He had been going about the house all morning, finding fault with everyone and pretending not to understand what was said to him and not to be understood himself. Princess Mary well knew this mood of quiet, absorbed querulousness, which generally culminated in a burst of rage, and she went about all that morning as though facing a cocked and loaded gun and awaited the inevitable explosion until doctor's arrival, the doctor's arrival, sorry, <clears throat> until the doctor's arrival, the morning had passed off safely. After admitting the doctor, Princess Mary sat down with a book in a drawing room near the door through which she could hear all that passed to the study. At first she heard only Metivia's voice, then her father's, then both voices began speaking at the same time. The door was flung open and on the threshold appeared the handsome figure of the terrified Metivia with his shock of black hair and the prince in his dressing gown and fez his face distorted with fury and his pupils of his eyes rolled downwards. You don't understand me, shouted the prince, but I do. French spy, slave of Bonaparte, spy, get out of my house, be off, I tell you. And he slammed the door. Mativia, shrugging his shoulders, went up to Bar Mademoiselle Borine, who, at the sound of shouting, had run in from an adjoining room. The prince is not very well, bile and a rush of blood to the head. Keep calm, I will call again tomorrow said Metivia, and putting his fingers to his lips, he hastened away. Through the study door came the sound of slippered feet and the cry, spies, traitors, traitors everywhere. Not a moment's peace in my own house. After Metivia departed, the old prince called his daughter in, and the whole weight of his wrath fell on her. She was to blame that a spy had been admitted, had he not told her, yes, told her to make a list and not to admit anyone who was not on that list, then why was that scoundrel admitted? She was the cause of it all. With her, he said, he could not have a moment's peace and could not die quietly. No, ma'am, we must part, we must part. Understand that, understand it, I cannot endure any more, he said, and he left the room. Then, as if afraid she might find some means of consolation, he returned, and trying to appear calm, added, And don't imagine I have said this in a moment of anger. I am calm. I have thought it over, and it will be carried out. We must part. So find some place for yourself. But he could not restrain himself, and with the virulence of which only one who loves is capable, evidently suffering himself, he shook his fists at her and screamed, If only some fool would marry her. Then he slammed the door, sent for Mademoiselle Borine, and subsided into his study. At two o'clock, the six chosen guests assembled for dinner. 
These guests, the famous Count Rostopchin, Prince Lapukin with his nephew, General Chaturov, an old war comrade of the princes, and the younger generation, Pierre and Boris Drubetskoy, awaited the prince in the drawing room. Boris, who had come to Moscow on leave a few days before, had been anxious to be presented to Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky and had contrived to ingratiate himself so well that the old prince, in his case, made an exception to the rule of not receiving bachelors in his house. The prince's house did not belong to what is known as fashionable society, but his little circle, though not much talked about in town, was one it was more flattering to be received in than any other. Boris had realised this a week before when the commander-in-chief in his presence invited Rostopchin to dinner on St. Nicholas's Day and Rostopchin had replied that he could not come. On that day I always go to pay my devotions to the relics of Prince Nicholas Bolkonsky. Oh yes, yes, replied the commander-in-chief. How is he? The small, small group that assembled before dinner in the lofty old-fashioned drawing room with its old furniture reassembled the solemn gathering of a court of justice. All were silent or talked in low tones. Prince Nicholas came in serious and came in serious and taciturn. Princess Mary seemed even quieter and more diffident than usual. The guests were reluctant to address her, feeling that she was in no mood for their conversation. Count Rostopchin alone kept the conversation going, now relating the latest town news and now the latest political gossip. Lopukhin and the old general occasionally took part in the conversation. Prince Bolkonsky listened as a presiding judge receives a report only now and then silently or by a brief word showing that he took heed of what was being reported to him. The tone of the conversation was such as indicated that no one approved of what was being done in the political world. Incidents were related, evidently confirming the opinion that everything was going from bad to worse. But whether telling a story or giving an opinion, the speaker always stopped, or was stopped, at the point beyond which his criticism might touch the sovereign himself. At dinner, the talk turned on the latest political news, Napoleon's seizure of the Duke of Oldenburg's territory and the Russian note hostile to Napoleon, which had been sent to all the European courts. Bonaparte treats Europe as a private does a captured vessel said Count Rostopchin, repeating a phrase he had uttered several times before. One only wonders at the long-suffering or blindness of the crowded heads. Now the Pope's turn has come, and Bonaparte doesn't scruple to depose the head of the Catholic Church, yet all keep silent. Our sovereign alone has protested against the seizure of the Duke of Oldenburg's territory, and even, Count Rostopchin paused, feeling that he had reached the limit beyond which censure was impossible. Other territories have been offered in exchange for the Duchy of Oldenburg, said Prince Bolkonsky. He shifts the dukes about as I might move my serfs from Bald Hills to Bogotrov or my Ryazan estates. The Duke of Oldenburg bears his misfortunes with admirable strength of character and resignation, remarked Boris, joining in respectfully. He said this because on his journey from Petersburg he had had the honour of being presented to the duke. Prince Bolkonsky glanced at the young man as if about to say something in reply, but changed his mind, evidently considering him too young. I have read our protests about the Oldenburg affair, and was surprised how badly the note was worded. 
remarked Count Rostopchin, in the casual tone of a man dealing with a f subject quite familiar to him. Pierre looked at Rostopchin with naive astonishment, not understanding why he should be disturbed by the bad composition of the note. Does it matter, Count, how the note is worded? he asked, so long as its substance is forcible. My dear fellow, with our five hundred thousand troops, it should be easy to have a good style, returned Count Rostopchin. Pierre now understood the Count's dissatisfaction with the wording of the note. One would have thought quill drivers enough had sprung up, remarked the old prince. There is Petersburg, they are always writing, not notes only, but even new laws. My Andrew here, there was written a whole volume of laws for Russia. Nowadays, they are always writing. And he laughed unnaturally. There was a momentary pause in the conversation. The old general cleared his throat to draw attention. Did you hear of the last event at the review in Petersburg? The figure cut by the new French ambassador. Eh? Yes, I heard something. He said something awkward in His Majesty's presence. His Majesty drew attention to the Grenadier Division and to the march past, continued the general, and it seemed the ambassador took no notice and allowed himself to reply that we in France pay no attention to such trifles. The Emperor did not condescend to reply. At the next review they say the Emperor did not once deign to address him. All were silent on this fact relating to the Emperor personally. It was impossible to pass any judgment. Impudent fellows, said the Prince. You know Metivier? I turned him out of my house this morning. He was here. They admitted him in spite of my request that they should let no one in, he went on, glancing angrily at his daughter. And he narrated his whole conversation with the French doctor and the reasons that convinced him that Metivier was a spy, Though these reasons were very insufficient and obscure, no one made any rejoinder. After the, after the roast, champagne was served. The guests rose to congratulate the old prince. Princess Mary, too, went round to him. He gave her a cold, angry look and offered her his wrinkled, clean-shaven cheek to kiss. The whole expression of his face told her that he had not forgotten the morning's talk, that his decision remained in force, and only the presence of visitors hindered his speaking of it to her now. When they went into the drawing-room where coffee was served, the old men sat together. Prince Nicholas grew more animated and expressed his views on the impending war. He said that our wars with Bonaparte would be disastrous so long as we sought alliances with the Germans and thrust ourselves into European affairs, into which we had been drawn by the Peace of Tilsit. We ought not to fight either for or against Austria, our political interests are all in the East, and in regard to Bonaparte, the only thing is to have an armed frontier and a firm policy, and he will never dare to cross the Russian frontier, as was the case in 1807. How can we fight the French, Prince? said Count Rostopchin. Can we arm ourselves against our teachers and divinities? Look at our youths, look at our ladies, the French are our gods, Paris is our kingdom of heaven. He began speaking louder, evidently to be heard by everyone. French dresses, French ideas, French feelings, there now. You turn Metivier out by the scruff of his neck, because he is a Frenchman and a scoundrel, but our ladies crawl after him on their knees. I went to a party last night, and there, out of five ladies, three were Roman Catholics, and had the Pope's indulgence for doing wool work on Sundays. And they themselves sit there, nearly naked, like the signboards at the public baths, if I may say so, ah, uh, when one looks at our young people, Prince, 
One would like to say Peter the Great's old cudgel out of the museum and belabor them in belabor them in the Russian way till all the nonsense jumps out of them. All were silent. The old prince looked at Rostopchin with a smile and wagged his head approvingly. Well, goodbye, Your Excellency. Keep well, said Rostopchin, getting up with a characteristic briskness and holding out his hand to the prince. Goodbye, my dear fellow. His words are music. I never tire, tire of hearing them, said the old prince, keeping hold of the hand and offering his cheek to be kissed. Following Rostopchin's example, the others also rose. All right, there we go. Another chapter for you. It's interesting how old man Bolkonsky, we've only known him as old man Bolkonsky, but evidently he was a very impressive young man Bolkonsky at some point. And he's still respected to this day. All right, have your say about it on the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you tomorrow.